0: Section fifteen of Volume One A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume One of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Frances Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter nine. THE MAYORS OF THE PALACE, THE PEPINS AND THE CHANGE OF DYNASTY, PART Two. The struggle had now begun in earnest, from the Rhone to the Garonne and the Ocean, between the Christians of southern Gaul and the Mussulmans of Spain. Duke Eudes saw with profound anxiety his enemies settled in Septimania, and ever on the point of invading and devastating Aquitania. He had been informed that the Caliph Hashem, had just appointed to the governor generalship of Spain, Abdel Rahman, the Abdiram of the Christian Chronicles, regarded as the most valiant of the Spanish Arabs, and that this chieftain was making great preparations for resuming their course of invasion. Another peril at the same time pressed heavily on Duke Oides. His northern neighbor, Charles, sovereign duke of the Franks, the conqueror beyond the Rhine of the Frizans and Saxons, was directing glances, full of regret, towards those beautiful countries of southern Gaul, which in former days Clovis had won from the Visigoths, and which had been separated little by little from the Frankish Empire. Either justly or by way of ruse, Charles accused Duke Oides of not faithfully observing the Treaty of Peace they had concluded in 720, and on this pretext he crossed the lawyer, and twice in the same year, 731, carried fear and rapine into the possession of the Duke of Aquitania, on the left bank of that river. Oides went, not unsuccessfully, to the rescue of his domains, but he was soon recalled to the Pyrenees by the news he received of the movements of Abdel-Rahman, and by the hope he had conceived of finding, in Spain itself and under the sway of the Arabs, an ally against their invasion of his dominions the military command of the spanish frontier of the pyrenees and of the mussulman forces there encamped had been entrusted to Otman ben abinesa a chieftain of renown but no arab either in origin or at heart although a mussulman he belonged to the race of berbers whom the romans called moors a people of the northwest of africa conquered and subjugated by the arabs but impatient under the yoke. The greater part of Abinessa's troops were likewise Berbers, and devoted to their chiefs. Abinessa, ambitious and audacious, conceived the project of seizing the government of the peninsula, or, at the least, of making himself independent master of the districts he governed, and he entered into negotiations with the Duke of Aquitania to secure his support. In spite of religious differences, their interests were too similar not to make an understanding easy, and the secret alliance was soon concluded and confirmed by a precious pledge. Duke Oides had a daughter of rare beauty named lampage and he gave her in marriage to Abinessa, who say the chronicles became desperately enamoured of her but whilst Oides, trusting to this alliance, was putting himself in motion towards the lawyer. To protect his possessions against a fresh attack from the Duke of the Franks, the Governor General of Spain, Abdel Rahman, informed of Abinessa's plot, was arriving with large forces at the foot of the Pyrenees to stamp out the rebellion. Its repression was easy. At the approach of Abdel Rahman, says the chronicles, Abinessa hastened to shut himself up in Livia, the ancient capital of Cerdagne, on the ruins of which. Puykerta was built, flattering himself that he could sustain a siege, and there a succor from his father-in-law, Oides. But the advance guard of Abdelrahman followed him so closely, and with such ardor, that it left him no leisure to make the least preparation for defence. Abinessa had scarcely time to fly from the town and gain the neighboring mountains, with a few servants and his well-beloved Lampaji. Already he had penetrated into an out-of-the-way and lonely pass, where it seemed to him he ran no more risk of being discovered. He halted, therefore, to rest himself and quench the thirst, which was tormenting his lovely companion and himself, beside a waterfall, which gushed from a mass of lofty rocks upon a piece of fresh green turf. They were surrendering themselves to the delightful feeling of being saved, when, all at once, they hear a loud sound of steps and voices. They listen, they glance in the direction of the sound, and perceive a detachment of armed men, one of those that were out in search of them. The servants take to flight, but Lampaji, too weary, cannot follow them, nor can Abinessa abandon Lampaji. In the twinkling of an eye, they are surrounded by foes. The chronicle is the door of Bodja, says that Abinessa, in order not to fall alive into their hands, flung himself from top to bottom of the rocks, and an Arab historian relates that so he took sword in hand, and fell pierced with twenty thrusts, whilst fighting in defence of her he loved. They cut off his head, which was forthwith carried to Abdel to whom they led away prisoner, the hopeless daughter of Oides. She was so lovely in the eyes of Abdel Rahman, that he thought it his duty to send her to Damascus, to the commander of the faithful, esteeming no other mortal worthy of her. Abdelrahman, at ease touching the interior of Spain, reassembled the forces he had prepared for his expedition, marched towards the Pyrenees by Pampeluna, crossed the summit become so famous under the name of Port de Roncivo, and debouched by a single defile and in a single column, says the Chronicles, upon Gallic Vasconia, greater in extent than French Biscay now is. M. Fauril, after scrupulous examination, according to his custom, estimates the army of Abdel Rahman, whether Mussulman adventurers flocking from all parts, or Arabs of Spain, at from sixty-five to seventy thousand fighting men. Duke Oides made a gallant effort to stop his march and hurl him back toward the mountains, but exhausted, even by certain small successes, and always forced to retire, fight after fight, up to the approaches to Bordeaux, he crossed the Garonne, and halted on the right bank of the river, to cover the city. abdel who had followed him closely, forced the passage of the river, and a battle was fought, in which the Aquitanians were defeated with immense loss. "'God alone,' says Isidore of Béa, "'knows the number of those who fell.' The battle gained, Abdelrahman took Bordeaux, by assault, and delivered it over to his army. The plunder, to believe the historians of the conquerors, surpassed all that had been perconceived of the wealth of the vanquished. The most insignificant soldier, say they, had for his share plenty of topazes, jachins, and emeralds, to say nothing of gold, or somewhat vulgar article under the circumstances. What appears certain is that, at their departure from Bordeaux, the Arabs were so laden with booty that their march became less rapid and unimpeded than before. In the face of this disaster, the Franks and their Duke were evidently the only support to which Oedis could have recourse, and he repaired in all haste to Charles, and invoked his aid against the common enemy, who, after having crushed the Aquitanians, would soon attack the Franks and subjects them in turn to ravages and outrages. Charles did not require solicitation. He took an oath of the Duke of Aquitania to acknowledge his sovereignty, and thenceforth remain faithful to him. And then, summoning all his warriors, Franks, Burgundians, Gallo-Romans, and Germans from beyond the Rhine, he set himself in motion towards the lawyer. It was time— The Arabs had spread over the whole country, between the Garonne and the Loire. They had even crossed the latter river and penetrated into Burgundy, as far as Autun and Sens, ravaging the country, the towns and the monasteries, and massacring or dispersing the populations. Abdel Rahman had heard tell of the city of Tours and its rich abbey. The treasures whereof, it was said, surpassed those of any other city— and any other abbey in Gaul. Burning to possess it, he recalled towards this point his scattered forces. On arriving at Poitiers, he found the gates closed, and the inhabitants resolved to defend themselves, and after a fruitless attempt at assault, he continued his march towards Tours. He was already beneath the walls of the place, when he learned that the Franks were rapidly advancing in vast numbers. He fell back towards Poitiers, collecting the troops that were returning to him from all quarters, embarrassed with the immense booty they were dragging in their wake. He had for a moment, say the historians, an idea of ordering his soldiers to leave or burn their booty, to keep nothing but their arms, and think of nothing but battle. However, he did nothing of the kind, and, to await the Franks, he fixed his camp between the Vienne and the Clain, near Poitiers, not far from the spot where, two hundred and twenty-five years before, Clovis had beaten the Visigoths, or, according to others' nearer tours, at mire, in a plain still called the Landes de Charlemagne. The Franks arrived. It was in the month of September or October, 732, and the two armies passed a week face to face at one time remaining in their camps, at another deploying without attacking. It's quite certain that neither Franks nor Arabs, neither Charles nor Abdel Rahman themselves, took any such account, as we do in our day, of the importance of the struggle in which they were on the point of engaging. It was a struggle between East and West, South and North, Asia and Europe, the Gospel and the Koran. And we now say on a general consideration of events, peoples, and ages, that the civilization of the world depended upon it. The generations that were passing upon earth see not so far, nor from such a height, the chances and consequences of their acts. The Franks and Arabs, leaders and followers, did not regard themselves, now nearly twelve centuries ago, as called upon to decide near Poitiers such future question but vaguely instinctively they felt the grandeur of the part they were playing and they mutually scanned one another with that grave curiosity which precedes a formidable encounter between valiant warriors at length at the breaking of the seventh or eighth day abdel rahman at the head of his cavalry ordered a general attack and the franks received it with serried ranks astounding their enemies by their tall stature "'stout armor, and their stern immobility. "'They stood there,' says Isidore of Beya, "'like solid walls or icebergs. "'During the fight a body of Franks "'penetrated into the enemy's camp, "'either for pillage or to take the Arabs in the rear. "'The horsemen of Abdel Rahman at once left the general attack "'and turned back to defend their camp "'or the booty deposited there. "'Disorder set in amongst them.' and before long throughout their whole army, and the battle became a confused melee, wherein the lofty stature and stout armor of the Franks had the advantage. A great number of Arabs and Abdel himself were slain. At the approach of night both armies retired to their camps. The next day, at dawn, the Franks moved out of theirs to renew the engagement. In front of them was no stir, no noise, no Arabs out of their tents and reassembling in their ranks. Some Franks were sent to reconnoitre, entered the enemy's camp, and penetrated into their tents, but they were deserted. The Arabs had decamped silently in the night, leaving the bulk of their booty, and by this precipitate retreat, acknowledging a more severe defeat than they had really sustained in the fight. Foreseeing the effect which would be produced by their reverse in the country they had but lately traversed as conquerors, they halted nowhere but hastened to re-enter Septimania, and their stronghold Narbonne, where they might await reinforcements from Spain. Duke Odois, on his side, after having as vassal taken the oath of allegiance to Charles, who will be thenceforth called Charles Martel Hammer. That glorious name, which he won by the great blow he dealt the Arabs, re-entered his dominions of Aquitania and Vasconia, and applied himself to the re-establishment there of security and of his own power. As for Charles Martel, indefatigable alike after and before victory, he did not consider his work in southern Gaul as accomplished. He wished to recover and reconstitute in its entirety the Frankish dominion. And he at once proceeded to reunite to it Provence, and the portions of the old kingdom of Burgundy, situated between the Alps and the Rhone, starting from Lyons. His first campaign with this object in seven hundred thirty-three was successful. He retook Lyons, Vienne, and Valence without any stoppage up to the Durance, and charged chosen lloyds to govern these provinces with a view especially to the repression of attempts at independence at home and incursions on the part of the Arabs abroad. And it was not long before these two perils showed head. The government of Charles Martel's Lloyds was hard to bear for populations, accustomed for some time past, to have their own way, and for their local chieftains thus stripped of their influence. Maurontius, patrician of Arles, was the most powerful and daring of these chieftains, and he had at heart the independence of his country and his own power far more than Frankish grandeur. Caring little, no doubt, for the interest of religion, he entered into negotiations with Joseph ben Abdel Rahman, governor of Narbonne, and summoned the Muslims into Provence. Joseph lost no time in responding to the summons, and from 734... Seven hundred thirty six, the Arabs conquered and were in military occupation of the left bank of the Rhone from Arles to Lyons. But in seven hundred thirty seven, Charles Martel returned, re entered Lyons and Avignon, and crossing the Rhone, marched rapidly on Narbonne to drive the Arabs from Septimania. He succeeded in beating them within sight of their capital, but after a few attempts at assault. Not being able to become master of it, he returned to Provence, laying waste on his march several towns of Septimania, Agdi, Magolonne, and Nimes, where he tried, but in vain, to destroy the famous Roman arenas by fire, as one blows up an enemy's fortress. A rising of the Saxons recalled him to northern Gaul, and scarcely had he set out from Provence, when national insurrection and Arab invasion recommenced. Charles Martel waited patiently as long as the Saxons resisted, but as soon as he was at liberty on their score, in seven hundred thirty nine, he collected a strong army, made a third campaign along the Rhone, retook Avignon, crossed the Durance, pushed on as far as the sea, took Marseilles and then Arles, and drove the Arabs definitely from Provence. Some Mussulman bands. Attempted to establish themselves about Saint Tropez, on the rugged heights and among the forests of the Alps, but Charles Martel carried his pursuit even into those wild retreats, and all southern Gaul, on the left bank of the Rhone, was incorporated in the Frankish dominion, which will be henceforth called France. The ordinary revenues of Charles Martel clearly could not suffice for so many expeditions and wars. HE WAS OBLIGED TO ATTRACT OR RETAIN BY RICH PRESENTS, PARTICULARLY BY GIFTS OF LANDS, THE WARRIORS, OLD AND NEW LOYDS, WHO FORMED HIS STRENGTHS. HE THEREFORE LAID HANDS ON A GREAT NUMBER OF THE DOMAINS OF THE CHURCH, AND GAVE THEM, WITH THE TITLE OF BENEFICES, IN TEMPORARY HOLDING, OFTEN CONVERTED INTO PROPRIETORSHIP, AND UNDER THE STYLE OF PRECARIOUS TENURE, TO THE CHIEFS IN HIS SERVICE. THERE WAS NOTHING NEW IN THIS, The Merovingian kings and the mayors of the palace had more than once thus made free with ecclesiastical property. But Charles Martel carried this practice much farther than his predecessors had. He did more. He sometimes gave his warriors ecclesiastical offices and dignities. His liege Milo received from him the archbishoprics of Rheims and Troves, and his nephew Hugh, those of Paris, Rowan, and Bayeux, with the abbeys of Fontenelle and Jemigues. The Church protested with all her might against such violations of her mission and her interest, her duties and her rights. She was so specially set against Charles Martel, that more than a century after his death, in 858, the bishops of France, addressing themselves to Louis the Germanic on this subject, wrote to him, St. Euryius, Bishop of Orleans, who now reposes in the monastery of St. Trudon, being at prayer, was transported into the realms of eternity, and there, amongst other things, which the Lord did show unto him, he saw Prince Charles delivered over to the torments of the damned in the lowest regions of hell. And St. Eucharist, demanding of the angel his guide, what was the reason thereof? The angel answered that it was the sentence of the saints, whom he had robbed of their possessions, and who, at the day of the last judgment, will sit with God to judge the world. End of chapter 9 Part 2